Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. You're listening to Dakota Spotlight. My name is James Walner. This is episode 15 of season 5, A Better Search for Barbara Cotton. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. In this episode, we're going to explore a couple of alternative explanations for what might have happened to Barbara. Both of these explanations are possible in theory. That is, they've been proven elsewhere to have taken place and been responsible for a missing persons case. So, in other words, we will not be talking about UFO abductions or things that have never been proven. The first thing we're going to talk about is a disappearance that took place in 1976 on the other side of the world. We'll meet a guy who wrote a book about it, and you'll find out, like I did, that there are some explanations for disappearances that we might never have considered. After that, we're going to talk about the occult, devil's worship, and explore some ideas floating around that maybe Barbara was a victim of some kind of cult. I'm a huge skeptic of all of this, but it certainly appears that there was a group of satanic worshippers in Williston around the time Barbara went missing. In fact, several people have reached out to me about this over the last few months. And then, to my surprise, I found some information on it. Then, through coincidence or maybe something else, I realized it is possible to connect some dots, allegedly, from Barbara Cotton all the way to some other deaths and murders elsewhere. This is all very, very fuzzy, and some people might say very far-fetched. One of those people is me, myself. I think it's far-fetched, at least in regards to having anything to do with Barbara Cotton's disappearance. But some things have popped up recently that make me feel like I really do need to tell you about all of this. Let's travel to the country of Sweden to explore other ways people might disappear. In the year 1976, a man named Boo Johnson, aged 25, simply vanished without a trace in Stockholm, Sweden. Like Barbara, no body has ever been found. Like Barbara, all of his belongings were left behind in his apartment. And as in Barbara's case, when Boo Johnson disappeared, people and law enforcement jumped to conclusions. But I am not the foremost authority on this case, so I called someone who is. His name is Anders Sunderlin, and he lives in Stockholm, Sweden. Hey, Anders, there's James. If you don't recognize that language, we are speaking Swedish. But I asked Anders to switch to English with me so you can follow along. Anders, thank you so much for taking some time with me. I am so excited to meet you. I just read your book a month ago. Uh, It's the most fascinating book I've read in a long time. So thanks for taking some time here uh, with us. I I really do appreciate to be a guest in your program. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I I didn't realize you had written that many books. It looks like 18 or something. 18 or something like that. Yes, I'm a, I'm a Swedish reporter, freelance reporter since 
more than 40 years and I started writing books after about 10 years of reporting and I'm been I'm still writing books on the different subjects and the last my last book uh, that came in uh, 2019 is about a disappearance in in Sweden. Uh, that's my last book, and I, I also I do I write for different uh, newspapers and magazines, and also do some teaching. Anders' most recent book is titled in Swedish "Brev Baren som försvann," which translates to "The Mailman or Postman Who Disappeared." The Mailman Who Disappeared. It's a very fascinating story. It's a story similar to Barbara's case in that this person, this mailman, 25-year-old Boo Johnson, just vanished, never to be heard from again, and no body has ever been discovered. Mostly for you listeners in Sweden or Stockholm, Boo Johnson lived on the street Folk Kungagatan on the southern island of the city, Södermalm. In fact, he lived a stone's throw from where I met the mother of my two daughters and where friends and I in the early 90s spent considerable time in a bar named Kelly's Bar near the subway station Medboyerplatsen. Boo Johnson, the mailman who disappeared, lived just up the street. Well, it, it it was a few years before Barbara Cotton disappeared. It was in April 1976 in Stockholm, in Sweden. Uh, he was working working as a mailman, and one Monday morning... One Monday morning, he didn't show up for work at the post office near his apartment. The mail workers would start their day at 6 a.m. sorting all the mail before they headed out into the city to deliver it. This was not like Boo Johnson at all, to not show up for work without calling in sick or anything. He lived alone. His, both parents were dead, and he had no brothers or sisters. When Boo Johnson did not show up for work, his co-workers were immediately perplexed. Several of his friends and co-workers called the police right away, but it would take several days before the police would enter his home. There, they found Boo Johnson's home undisturbed. There was food in the fridge. The only thing missing was Boo, his jacket, and shoes. It was like he just left, like he was just going to run out to the store or something, but never came back. His indoor slippers stood just inside the door. But Boo Johnson was not just a mailman. And he wasn't foremost a mailman. He was... Um uh, left-wing activist. A left-wing activist who took part in demonstrations and protests and so on in the early 70s, speaking out against the United States' involvement in Vietnam and other things. He was very involved. He was also a type of expert on the country of Albania, a communist dictatorship at the time. And he spoke um, uh, Albanian. And he was working on a dictionary, Swedish-Albanian dictionary. So he was quite involved in Albanian politics and friendship in the friendship organization. Boo Johnson rubbed elbows in Stockholm with Albanians, activists, politicians, and embassy employees, and probably with ambassadors, too. Boo Johnson also liked to travel a lot. And when he did so, he traveled alone, mostly to Albania and along the West-East European border. And then he, I found it so fascinating, some of these trips he did. I think you figured out that on one trip he was in Iceland 
And he didn't even look up a friend who was in Iceland. And then on his way home, he went via Berlin and went into East Berlin for like a half a day or something. And it's just so fascinating. Could he have been a spy, an agent of some kind? Can he have become, come into trouble because of his, all his journeys uh, all along the West East European border? Uh, or was he um, kidnapped in some way, or was it an accident, or anything? But the, the problem with the, the, these disappearances is that there are really no traces. Just like Barbara, no traces. None at all. Again, if you're wondering what this has to do with Barbara, I'm not going to be suggesting that Barbara Cotton was a spy. Rather, I just want to share with you some fascinating stuff that Anders Sundelin learned while looking for his missing person, Boo Johnson, the mailman who disappeared. I wrote my first article about this case 30 years ago. Uh, and then I written a couple of articles about it. And I've also written about other disappearances, not many, but a few disappearances. And in, in, and the other, in the other cases, you have, you know, you get some leads and you can follow a few traces. But in this case, I really have no no idea, really no idea. The last known documented trace of Boo Johnson is a subway ticket receipt from Saturday afternoon, two days before his colleagues started wondering where he was. Boo Johnson must have made it home on Saturday because that subway ticket was found in the apartment. And, you know, you have that subway ticket at um, four something about around 4 p.m. in the afternoon from Christina Barry, the subway station where he was at his meeting on that Saturday. And so they find that in his apartment. So he probably took the subway from Christina Barry to uh, what would have been Medboyerplatzen or something, wherever. He- yeah, Medboyerplatzen yeah, in Stockholm, quite near his, his flat. Everything was left in the apartment in his flat. I mean, there, there was this uh, subway ticket, but also his wallet, his watch. There were keys, uh, his passport, and he had a lot of money. You know, he had, had, um, he had a lot of money uh, that he had inherited. Uh, and everything was, uh, it was just he who was left and no jacket and, and um, shoes. And you also noted that, was very good to point out, Everyone back then had an address book. Yes, yes. Especially if you were active and in a board and so on and so on. Yeah. It was enough, something you could put in your pocket and it had names and phone numbers of everyone you knew or wanted to send postcards to. Or, and that, that is missing as far as we know, right? That is, that is the thing I, I, I discovered was missing. No address book. He, he could have had that in his jacket, of course. Also similar to Barbara's case, the initial investigation of Boo Johnson's disappearance has been called into question. Yeah, and that is a big problem because it took, it was just, it took uh, one and a half year before there was a real investigation. The problem was that the the, the guy, the police who who, um, was responsible for this case, he was responsible for all the disappearances in Stockholm. There was something wrong with him. I don't know what. Perhaps he was quite old. He was perhaps ill at this moment. We, we don't know. And I think also that he, when he heard about this case. When he heard about it, that first detective who worked the case just assumed that Boo Johnson must have taken his own life, a suicide, he said. And so 
He didn't do much. So he did nothing. He did nothing. What the detective did do is a bit surreal. Because Boo Johnson had no family, this detective became somehow legally and officially responsible for Boo Johnson's estate. So he sold most of Boo's stuff at a flea market, and then he let his own daughter move into Boo's apartment. And then he let his daughter move into the apartment. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really amazing story. And because this detective, for some unknown reason, assumed Boo Johnson had taken his own life, Boo Johnson's neighbors were never interviewed. But if it had been a regular police investigation, perhaps some neighbor had said, "Oh yes, I saw him Sunday evening. He was with some guy or something like that." You know. Wow, it's just all fascinating.、Um, I want to move on to the kind of the reason I reached out to you because, as I said at this point in the podcast, I mean this is not even a possibility for Barbara. But I, I want to sort of just share with listeners what things have happened around the world where people have gone missing. And when I got to this chapter of your book, I was just incredibly fascinated. So you want to tell us a little bit about North Korea? North Korea, yeah. Actually, I got a mail from a friend. And he had just read a thing I had written about Boo before, and he he became very fascinated with the case, and he sent a, a, a mail to me from Chiang Mai, where he lives,、uh, and said, "Had you have you thought about North Korea?" And I said, "What? Yeah, North Korea. What what do you mean by North Korea?" Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus for as little as five dollars per month. You will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast "Who Killed." I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who killed as an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production? Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. And he said, "Don't you know that that North Korea had kidnapped people from all over the world?" And I didn't know anything about it. I didn't really know anything about it. Starting in the 1950s, after the Korean War, North Korea kidnapped thousands of South Koreans, most of them fishermen. These people were used as spies for propaganda purposes. North Korea at this time in the 50s were more prosperous, prosperous than South Korea. But then, in the middle of the 70s, when when、uh, Kim Jong Il came after his father, then Kim Il Sung, he had he was very interested in the security. He wanted to modernize it and so on. And they started to kidnap people. First of all, from Japan to have as、uh, in their spy schools to to、uh, be、um, language teachers. 
But North Korea didn't just need language teachers; they needed other people. They needed actors, for example, for movies. If they needed an actor who looked West European and they didn't have one, well, they could just kidnap someone from Italy, for example. They also needed foreigners to teach North Korean spies about everyday life in their home countries. If you're a North Korean spy and you're going to get sent to Italy, you need to know a lot about that country, that society. So they started to kidnap people, mainly from Japan and and South Korea, but also from Thailand, from Macau, and also a few cases that we know about from Europe, Italy, for example. All of this started around 1976, five years before Barbara went missing. I don't think Barb is in North Korea teaching Koreans English or anything like that. But Boo Johnson in Stockholm, Sweden, was a prime and perfect candidate. He was a left-wing activist, and he was good at languages, and he spoke Albanian uh, and also other other languages. So. Why not? Perhaps, and we know that as he was active in a friendship, left-wing friendship organizations, there were also other friendship organizations, among them a Swedish North Korean friendship organization, and there was an embassy from, I think, from middle of about 1975-76, there was established a North Korean embassy in Stockholm, and they had parties there. Yeah, the North Korean embassy in Stockholm had parties, and invited to those parties were people like Boo Johnson, who moved in left-wing circles of town. So he had met North Koreans. So it was not. I mean, he had some contacts with them, you know. I don't know how. I don't know how they worked, but when they were picking out people to kidnap, I don't know if they were so humane that they cared. But if they were tried in their own minds, were trying to do it in some humane way, Busa had no. Sisters, no parents. He was alone, and he he had all these languages. I wonder. I mean, for me, when I read that chapter in your book, I thought he he looked like a prime candidate. Yeah, that. I mean, there had also been been speculations because of his many journeys along the the West European border that he was an agent of some kind, that he had been involved in something. Perhaps he didn't know. How dangerous! But perhaps he didn't even know that he was an agent. You know that he collected informations. And I have a good friend who is a, a security agent in the security in the security police who has worked with these cases like this. And he said that if he if he should pick one guy, I mean, in the Swedish Albanian society, he would have picked uh, Bo Johnson. One thing because he was he was um, alone. And also that Busse Jansson was intelligent, that he was careful, he wasn't an adventurer. So all these things made him uh, a target. Anders did not just speculate about Busse Jansson being in North Korea. He did what I would have done. He kept at it and tried to find out. A friend of Anders had seen movie stills from a film from North Korea. In that movie, there was an actor, a Westerner. Anders got a hold of the movie, pushed play, leaned in close to observe this Western actor in a North Korean movie. Could it be Boo Johnson? He thought. Who was tall? Boo Johnson was tall. It was he. He was a Westerner, but it was not Boo. No, it was not him. No, it was not Boo Johnson. 
Anders Sunderland has not figured out what happened to Boo Johnson. Like Barbara Cotton, it remains a mystery. Unfortunately, Anders' book has not been translated from Swedish to English or any other language. But for my Swedish-speaking friends out there, I really recommend the book, especially if you've ever lived in Stockholm. It's a fascinating journey and exploration of Stockholm during the Cold War. Where can they get the book? At Ad Libris or something? Oh, in the book, bookshop. And it's called, we want to say the title? Brev, Brevbäraren som försvann. The Mailman Who Disappeared. The Mailman Who Disappeared. Anders has listened to A Better Search for Barbara. I asked him if he had any advice for me. He said, read the police file. I said, they won't let me read the police file. He said, talk to the original investigators. I said, some are gone. The others have respectfully denied to talk to me. I asked Anders if he had any thoughts or theories about Barbara Cotton. She didn't run away because we left all the money back. So, I mean, it might, and she wasn't politically involved as, as Boo Johnson. She wasn't an agent of some kind. She wasn't an expert on anything, you know. So, so she must, well, it can have been an accident, of course, or murder, or some, someone were at least responsible for it. No, I, I really, really just wish you luck for in this case that you can uh, disclose more things about this disappearance of this young girl. Many, many thanks to Anders Sunderlin for joining us from Sweden to talk about missing Boo Johnson. For all of you Swedish-speaking people out there, missa inte boken bryr bäran som försvann av Anders Sunderlin finns i bokhandeln och på nätet och även som ljudbok. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Let's take a look at this cult and occult business, shall we? For this segment, I contacted our friend Carrie Abbey, the private investigator. Hey, Carrie Abbey, how are you doing? It's been a while. Good, how are you? I'm good. I'm happy to talk to you today. And we're going to talk about uh, something I've been kind of putting off. Um, because I'm very skeptical of the whole thing. And then all of a sudden, some things have happened in the last couple of weeks. I'm like, okay, I got to tell listeners about this. But we're going to talk about cults and the occult, which I think people use that word, sort of get that word mixed up. I'd actually just put, look this up. Uh, I have a great definition for it in this um, report from the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. Um, it was written by a former supervisory special agent of the Behavioral Science Unit, and it's called The Investigator's Guide to Allegations of Ritual Child Abuse. It was published in 1992. Um, and in this article, uh, supervisory special agent Kenneth Lanning, it's not an article, I'm sorry, in this uh, report, supervisory special agent Kenneth Lanning um, has this great quote in here, and he says, occult means simply hidden. All reports of unresolved crimes might be regarded as an occult, but in this context, the term refers to the action or influence of supernatural powers, some secret knowledge of them, or an interest in paranormal phenomenon, and does not simply imply Satanism, evil, wrongdoings, or crime. 
it's a, it's a very open definition. It definitely is. Yeah. And I'll just say over the course of this podcast, I've gotten a few emails and spoken to people who said, you know, there was a place outside of Williston somewhere. Some have said it was a barn. Some said a building. Some, you know, said by the river where kids, I, I say kids, I assume teenagers, young people got together and sort of practiced this worshiping or devil worshiping or the occult, whatever. And I've never looked closer at it, but I will say that even where I grew up, I think I could be wrong about this. What do you think? Like, I, I bet every high school has had a cluster of kids who played around with that stuff. Absolutely. Tom made a great point recently in that a lot of occult Satanism, these very negative aspects that, um, or very negative um, definitions that people have, all of that comes with very simplistic iconography that is immediately taboo. And it, that kind of draws people into it sometimes, especially young people who just, you know, this pentagram's cool and I can draw it anywhere and I like to do that and I like to wear all black and people are scared of me and that's cool. You know, it's kind of a, in, in the same draw why somebody might want to be, you know, a cheerleader or a football, football player, um, kind of have that little bit of notoriety in their school. I kind of think uh, this is just another, another part of that. It's Recently, the streaming service Netflix released a documentary film titled Sons of Sam. The documentary is about the Son of Sam murders in New York City, which began in mid-1976. The killer was identified as David Berkowitz, and he confessed to eight murders. But the documentarian who made the Netflix film alleges that other people were involved in the Son of Sam killings, and his quest ultimately took him to Minot, North Dakota. Carrie and I both watched this documentary, and then I asked her what she thought. Um, I, it, it's interesting. I, you know, I couldn't help but notice that part of the, the issue that they covered extensively in that documentary was the problematic behavior of sensationalizing um, you know, an incident like this. And then here they were sensationalizing it um, again in a documentary years and years later. Although I do think they kind of tied up some loose ends there at the end. Um, and I appreciate that. The cops called the case closed. They had their man. But then... So then this investigative journalist kind of gets involved. Um, what do you know about that? So Maury Terry, it was an investigative journalist who just took an interest in the Son of Sam killings and decided to, you know, probe as far as he could with it. He's the one who uncovered the major link there to John Carr, who kind of played a minor role, according to David Berkowitz, um, in the killings, and that Sam Carr had a dog who may or may not have been possessed by the devil and was giving him orders to kill. So convicted Son of Sam killer David Berkowitz had a friend named John Carr. Remember that name, John Carr. We'll be talking about him a lot. The documentary, based on the work of investigative journalist Maury Terry, suggests that John Carr may have been involved in some of the killings in New York. And then when this investigative journalist starts looking into this, he pretty much spent most of his life until he, or a big part of his life until he passed away um, looking into this. Mm -hmm. And he found some kind of occult connection. It had something to do with the location there in New York, or do you remember? Yes, there was a park that there was some believed satanic ritualistic activities. They said they had found some um, possibly sacrificed uh, dogs, and there was some symbols drawn in like a, an abandoned house on this park property. 
that they were associating with the satanic cult. And then the story goes to Minot, North Dakota. And this is in this Netflix uh, documentary called Sons of Sam. In fact, um, Inform.com published an article about this very thing. Like this made local news, right? This this mm-hmm. Netflix documentary and the Minot connection to the Sons of Sam thing and the occult. So the connection is what? John Carr um, was here in Minot, North Dakota, and I, I'm not 100% clear on this story, but I believe he was here visiting his girlfriend who was stationed at Minot Air Force Base or had reason to be at Minot Air Force Base. And then, well, he ends up dying. John Carr, this, this guy who this investigative journalist believes was involved in the Sons of Sam murders, ends up possibly, I guess, killing himself in Minot. Yeah, the, the official finding is that he dies by suicide from a single gunshot wound to his face on Minot Air Force Base. And I believe it's in the housing based on some of the pictures that I've seen. Yeah, and then there's a couple uh, North Dakota law enforcement uh, agents or officers mm-hmm. in the documentary as well. I think it's Glenn Geetson and Mike Knoop or Knopp. They talk about their roles investigating satanic cult and drug activity in the Minot area in the mid-1970s, which may have links to... I'm just reading off of uh, the Inform article now. Um, So there's some occult stuff there, too. And did they definitely tie tie that stuff to this John Carr? No, I mean, not not that I can tell from any of the public news articles. You know, Ward County Sheriff's Department, Glenn Geetson, says that he knew there was cold activity going on in the Minot area, but had never seen it. Mm-hmm. And I, I have some follow-up questions for that kind of statement. I don't know how you would know something. I mean, you can know lots of things without seeing it firsthand. I just, there's not enough explanation for me there to understand why he was so sure it was happening. So just for everyone listening here, we are going to get to how this ties into Barbara Cotton. So this guy, John Carr, who maybe was involved in these killings and may, may have been involved in the occult or some kind of worship in this documentary, he kills himself in Minot. And there's apparently some activity going on in, in Minot with kids or whoever. Um, there's something about dogs being killed, too. Do you remember that? Yes. Um, I mean, I think you can kind of pit... I think if you asked anybody at any given time in any given place, they might tell you about some some bad stuff happening with dogs, honestly. I think it's really easy to, for people to victimize animals, and obviously I don't condone that by any means. And I, But I, I think that, that it would be common um, if there's some kind of criminal activity happening, that if, if people are being victimized, like animals are likely being victimized as well. So let's, everyone's wondering, so let's get into the, it's not a clear connection, but this is the reason we're bringing, I'm bringing this up. I felt like I should, there is sort of a weird connection to maybe to Barbara or at least to Williston. So let's talk about, in this documentary, they mentioned, is it Phil Falcon? What was the deal with him in this documentary? Do you remember? So Phil Falcon is a North Dakota local friend of John Carr. And there's some kind of insinuation in the documentary Sons of Sam that Phil Falcon and John Carr were involved in some sort of satanic ritualistic cult here in North Dakota. Potentially some dogs killed and stuff, which we just spoke about. But mm-hmm. And there was that quote from uh, Deputy Geetson about um, people drinking dog urine or human urine. I'm not sure which. 
I think it was dog. Yeah, I don't remember. Human urine or something. Yeah. Maybe dog blood and human urine. Right. So the interesting thing with Barbara Cotton's story is if those of you who remember my interview with the gentleman named Daryl Lund, and he he's the gentleman who had a memory of seeing Barbara Cotton downtown Williston. He thinks it was possibly the night she went missing. They even went to Cakes and Cones together. He remembers her asking him for a cigarette and his friend. And then another guy who potentially kind of looked like Frank De La Pena walking up and giving her a cigarette because they didn't have any left. Well, Daryl Lund, his companion, his friend that was with him that night was Randy Falcon. And what have you found out about the association between Randy Falcon and Willis in our story with Barbara and this Phil Falcon in the documentary? Randy and Phil Falcon are brothers. Right. And as far as as far as I can tell from anything, there's no crossover between um, John Carr and Phil Falcon with Barb Cotton. Mm-hmm. And we're talking this occurred, was it six years before she goes? I'm sorry. No, it's only four years before she goes missing. Um, there's no indication. I mean, at that point, Barb would have been 11 years old. Um, I doubt she was running around with um, a potentially satanic cult at 11 years old. I mean, there's no real indication that these things overlap. But I have confirmed with a member of the Falcon family that Randy and Phil Falcon are brothers. and They are both now deceased, correct? I believe Randy is. Randy is for sure. I'm, I'm unclear about Phil. Well, maybe we if he's not, we'd love to talk to him. I do think there's an obituary for him from February of 2013. The final straw or whatever, the reason I wanted to talk about all of this on the podcast is because something I found at the uh, state archives last week when I was going through old issues of the Williston Herald on microfilm. And, you know, it's one thing that Randy Falcon is a brother of Phil Falcon and all that. But I found this article on May 2nd, which just happens to be, I think, the day before... Frank De La Pena leaves Williston, and he will kill those two girls in Wyoming on the 7th. So, you know, five days later, he's just gotten out of the hospital in Williston, and this article is not related to him, but the timing is just, with our story of Barbara Cotton, is just interesting. This is all going on at the same time. Barbara goes missing April 11th. Um, Frank De La Pena kills the girls in Wyoming on May 7th, and... This is an article that says, City Dog Napping Ring is Rumor, Fact, Fiction, Question Mark. And it talks about, I'll read the first first paragraph. Rumors of a dog napping ring have been circulating recently in the Williston area, and while that may seem strange in itself, added twists make the story seem, sound almost bizarre. And then they bring up Phil Falcon. You know what's interesting is I I, was, I have read Phil Falcon's um um I'm sorry and a cat just jumped up in my way um uh, obituary and in his obituary he I mean he was a Minot State uh, Teachers College graduate so he was a teacher I don't know what kind of connection he may or may not have had with um with like teaching uh. Um, but he was a teacher. He was very active in his community. There's this line in here that says, Phil was a natural intellect, loved to read, and most of all, plays guitar and create the gift of music. It's very um, kind of flattering towards him. This same um, obituary, by the way, does confirm Randy Falcon is his brother. I know there's Randy Falcon's not a completely unusual name, but um, 
this this is from the Williston Herald um, from February 8th of 2013. It seems like it's possible he did kind of youth outreach type things. Second paragraph says, tied to a juvenile, tied to a possible increase in the di- disappearance of purebred dogs in Williston, may be a satanic cult with connections to a man who may have committed many of the Sons of Sam murders attributed to David Berkowitz, New York City's infamous 44 caliber killer. It says, an occult group which is said to abduct animals, usually large dogs, and kill them in ceremonies designed as sacrificial offerings to Satan, practices in the Williston area, according to Sharon Redman, a student of religious groups. Again, this article comes out right at the time when Barbara goes missing, that same, you know, within three weeks. Okay, I'll read another one. Redman, this is who's lectured on the topic to area groups, says she met with a former member of the Williston group a couple years ago. This group told me they had their meetings and did animal sacrifices and their ceremonies, and in their ceremonies, chanting uh, and whatnot, and they were oftentimes held on the riverbanks. But again, it goes on to say about um, the pro about a, I guess a documentary was made back then too. The program, which also looks into the deaths of several persons involved and threats still being made against those investigating the case, alleges that the Minot activities were based at a coffee house known as the Falcon's Nest, owned by Phil Falcon. The owner of the restaurant, since closed down, is former Williston resident. He could not be reached for comment. So, <laughs> I mean. Daryl Lund's story that he saw Barbara with in the company of uh, Randy Falcon, we haven't, you know, he, he wasn't certain it was the night she went missing. I haven't been able to verify that story, obviously. That is his recollection. You know, it's just all kind of funny. And the final thing I'll say before we maybe talk about this a little more is that a person who knew Barbara, she remembers someone who knew Barbara stealing a dog, <laughs> a German Shepherd. It's just, it's just goes, these dogs, I can't get away from dogs in this story, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a, I genuinely can't tell if that's a legitimate connection or just dogs are common. You know, you know that whole trope, if you're looking for a red car, you're going to see red cars everywhere. And I, I can't tell if that, if that's what this is, or if it's a, like a, a thread we should be pulling. Exactly. I feel exactly the same way. On the one hand, I want to make it clear to everyone listening that I'm not trying to say, you know, Barbara was killed because of some kind of cult or occult activity. I'm very, very skeptical of all this. And at the same time, I can feel my skepticism possibly getting in the way. Like the whole, the whole reason I haven't brought this up until now is because, like I said, originally some emails from some people, hey, you know, people talking about the occult. And then this documentary comes out. And then the Phil Randy Falcon thing. And then I find this article and I thought, okay, we have to address it at this point, at least put it out there. And I still, I'm still very skeptical, to be honest. I mean, first of all, Berkowitz, I mean, none of these stories about the occult talk about kidnapping 15 year old girls and hiding their bodies. None of that's going on. I mean, I'm not saying mm-hmm. Berkowitz didn't kidnap 15-year-old girls in New York and then hide them. Uh, it's a completely different yeah, thing. Yeah, correct. There's no, um, there's no indication of that. You look for a pattern of behavior with criminal activity. And, I mean, there's lots of patterns of behavior for David Berkowitz. I mean, everybody has patterns of behavior for all sorts of things. But none of the known patterns of behavior for David Berker- Berkowitz include kidnapping a 15-year-old girl and doing anything with her. And nowhere in this article about potential 
an occult group in Williston or the Minot thing where they talk about sacrificing young women. It was dogs. You can find patterns if you want to find patterns, but we're not seeing established patterns. We're seeing very minor links. And that's kind of what was signature with the investigative journalist Maury Terry is he saw very small things and made kind of some logical connections. And when he didn't find the supporting documents that he was hoping for or the supporting information that he was hoping for, he kind of moved on to the next thing and like, I can work this connection to death. Yes. I can work this connection to death. And that's understandable. That is investigation. Um, there's, there needs to be kind of a sense of awareness to, to, some, to some degree. There's a really great quote from that FBI agent, Ken Lanning, that says, the evidence wasn't there, but the allegations of satanic ritual abuse never really went away. When people get emotionally involved in an issue, common sense and reason go out the window. People believe what they want and need to believe. And I think that kind of can translate into a lot of this stuff, especially with anything related to satanic ritual rit- satanic ritualistic abuse or the allegations around it is people just get scared and they want to believe this thing. It's easier to believe this than something else. It's when you don't understand something and you want to shut it down. I always think of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, mostly because up until about 1995 or something, uh, which was a while ago now, I read pretty much everything that had been printed about it, all the books and I learned while reading about that, that you can find a conspiracy or the weirdest theory about things. If you look hard enough, you will find it. And to date, there are probably, what, 500 theories about what happened to JFK, at least 100. And some of them are sort of logical types of theories. And some of them are just out there that like, you know, I haven't heard the one that he committed suicide yet, but it's almost gets to be that absurd. You know, actually, that's actually something I, we didn't address that I think is really important. A lot of these allegations about satanic abuse or the allegations about uh, satanic activity in Minot, North Dakota, have links to these tunnels underground here in town. And there's two very reasonable explanations for these tunnels in town in Minot that I think people are commonly overlooking. Number one is that Minot was a huge hub and the prohibition era and rum running and that sort of activities. And when alcohol was prohibited, there's Minot was a big port for that sort of thing. And the second one is, but there is an air force base here and there's tunnels under lots of towns and cities in, in the United States. It's not, it's not that unusual. You know, I think the value of this episode, let's put it this way. Tell me what you think. If, the cult, an occult, or the occult was involved in Barbara Cotton's disappearance. I think what we'll achieve with this episode is your and my skepticism sparking some fire under someone's, you know, who who are frustrated with us. Yeah, if if, if there is a cult or somebody's involved, like hopefully us saying that this is kind of silly, <laughs> well, will make somebody feel motivated to prove it. So let let's just summarize here. Um, before the train comes, I'll let you take over a little bit. This Son of Sam Killings in New York by Berkowitz. There's an investigative journalist, Maureen Terry, who decides to look into this further and see if there's any other people who were who were involved in the Son of Sam Killings. And he finds a connection with John Carr. Um, John Carr then dies by suicide months later here at Minot, North Dakota. And from that connection, we know... Uh, 
or we know that while John Carr was in North Dakota, he had some contact with Phil Falcon, and Phil Falcon is the brother of Randy Falcon. And Randy Falcon, according to Daryl Lund, who we spoke with on the podcast, uh, Randy Falcon was with Daryl the night they saw Barbara, and, you know, near the outside the Plainsman building. They went to Cakes and Cones together. Is his re- recollection the night she went missing, or within that sometime around then? And then I found this article on that very May 5th, you know, three weeks after Barbara went missing, talking about Phil Falcon, the owner of the restaurant, or a dog, city dog napping ring in Williston. And someone told me that she remembered, who knew Barbara, remembers a friend of Barbara's stealing a dog. There was cult activity, apparently, or an occult group in Williston that's in this article. Well, this has been great, Carrie. Thank you so much again. Um, before we sign off, how is the um, private investigations world treating you? You know, it's been pretty rough recently, honestly. Um, this job can be very emotionally trying, and I have yet to find a case where I don't get emotionally invested in one way or another. Even when it's, it's not so much about, I don't even know how to say it. It's not so much about being emotionally attached to a defendant so much as trying to preserve somebody's rights um, to the best of the ability that I can from a distance. And it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> the job can be trying. All right. Well, thanks again, Carrie Abbey, for um, talking to me about this. It's been really interesting with all the stuff going on with this Sons of Sam documentary and the connection to Minot and, and the Falcon Brothers, I guess. Thank you so much. Of course. I'm glad we got to do this. That's all for this time. I hope you enjoyed hearing about North Korea. And if you think Carrie Abbey and I are crazy, that we are way too pessimistic in regards to the possibility that people associated with cults or the occult had something to do with Barb's disappearance, I really encourage you to prove us wrong. I don't have to be right. I just want to know what happened to Barbara Cotton. Still plan for future episodes, a deeper dive into open records, what they are, how to get them, and why you should, and I do mean you. Also still in the plans, a trip to Montana to sniff out the places where Stacy Werder was and where he died. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Better Search for Barbara. I'll see you next time. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wollner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.